God is with us. And this word that was just read to us was called the Christ hymn in the days that after Jesus had just left the earth. And when it was written, it was written sort of as a creed that we might call it today. It was the, the definition of what Christians believed about Jesus Christ. And within it, it holds the promise for us that God is in control of all things and that God has our hands, God has our lives in his hands. And so before we begin, I want to pray uh, for each of us that we begin to understand even more the love that God has for us and also that our love for him would grow. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before your word, we pray that in all things, in everything, we would know how close you are. That you are as close to us as our heart is within us. Father, I pray that as we think of our lives today, we would be honest. We would know where we are and where we're hurting and where we're needy and where we're happy and where we're glad and where we're putting our energy and what we're excited about. That we'd be very aware of that. And Lord, that you would speak into that. That we would hear your voice about these important things in our lives. Heavenly Father, help us to understand why you gave us Jesus and who Jesus is so that we would want to center our lives on him and be so focused upon the greatness and grace that you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're talking about what it means to have our lives centered on Jesus. And to be able to do that, we need to have a sense of imagination at first. Because today's message is going to help us if we have an imagination. And so I want you to start by thinking of yourself as a large planetary body. Okay? So just, just think of yourself as some form of large planetary body. All right? And now I want you to think about all the things of your life. All right? And I want you to think, are those things things that you are orbiting around? All right? Are you orbiting around them so that those things are the focus of your lives? Okay? Or are there other things that are orbiting around you that you are controlling? Okay? So I want you to think again of yourself as a large planetary body. And are you orbiting around something? Is it the great center of your life and you are traveling around it? Or are there things where... You are the center, and other things are traveling all around you. You know, we always talk about wanting to have Jesus first in our lives, as was said. And if we were asked, what's the center of your lives? I'm sure all of us would know what the right answer is, right? So the right answer would be God, or the right answer would be Jesus. But 
how would we know? How could we know? If we were actually telling the truth or if we were deceiving ourselves? I think you already saw this picture up here. And I think that's a picture I could confess to. That so often I expect the world to revolve around me. That I am the center of the universe. And I expect God to do everything for me. Now, I know that's not right. But there's something that pulls me to do that. Now, God, God has given himself to us through Jesus that we might know how to break out of that kind of orbit. How we might know how to not have the world revolve around me, but to have me revolving around Jesus. And the things that might be going around my life, like moons, are also revolving around Jesus. Last week, we introduced the mission statement of our church to you, or we reintroduced it to you. And you have it there on your outline. It's right in the middle. And would you read it with me? It begins with the word cultivating. Let's say it together. Cultivating a community of harvesters who are maturing in Christ's likeness and making disciples across generations in Orange County and around the world. I want you just to pay attention to that last word, world. Because our mission statement is outward focused. The ultimate desire of our mission statement is that God would use us. Yes, he's going to cultivate us. And yes, he's going to draw us to be a community. And yes, we're going to be those who plant and water and watch things grow. But the ultimate maturity, the ultimate goal, the ultimate purpose of everything in our lives is for the sake of the world. Just like Jesus is. Because for God so loved the world that he gave us Jesus. God wants us to be able to know who he is. Last week we mentioned that knowledge is an intimate experience with God. It's not just head knowledge, but it may be starting off as some knowledge in our head, but it must go into our heart to be complete. And so what God would have us to know is to bring within our hearts. And as we look at the scriptures today, we see the very first thing is that God is the creator of all things through Jesus Christ. Let me read again verse 15 through 16. He is the image of the invisible God. And this is speaking of Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. Jesus Christ is the creator of the world. He created all things. And we're going to start and see from the world's point of view that this is very large. And God's going to take that and just keep going deeper and deeper and deeper into our lives. But we have to begin by understanding that he is the creator of the world. And that we can know the creator of the world. We can know the king of the universe. The Bible says right here that Jesus is the image. 
He's the image of the invisible God. Now, we understand images. In fact, our world is just full of images today, especially on our smartphones and on our computers, because we can have an image of somebody right before us live and talk to them. I mean, it's so much better than just talking, you know, by telegraph as it first was, or even by telephone as it was maybe 20 years ago. Now you can Skype or Facebook, and you can see the image of somebody right there. and Talk to them. It's a whole lot better. And God sent his image of Jesus so that we could see what God is like. Now, we use Skype a fair amount in our home, and especially with our son Gabriel. Uh, Gabriel's been in Chicago for the last five years, and so we've been Skyping. And it's been fun because we can talk to him and we can see him at the same time. And so one day, I was talking to Gabriel. I was Skyping with him, and he's sitting in his room. And his roommates were sort of walking around in the background. And one roommate would walk by, and he'd stop, and he'd look at the screen, and he'd smile, and then he'd point at it, and then he'd laugh. And another guy would walk by, and and he'd look at it, and he'd see the screen, and he'd look at it, he'd point at it, and he'd laugh. I said, hey, Gabe, what's going on? What are your roommates saying? What's going on? And he says, oh, hey, look, it's an old Gabe. (laughs) Oh, thanks. But he's an image of his father. He is an image of me. Now, I bear a poor resemblance Okay, to God. But God wants me to become the image of Jesus. He wants me to grow. And so he sent his son, Jesus, who is the image of God. Now, not some imperfect, getting older image, but the perfect image of God. So that we could know him. So that we could see him. And so the Bible says that why God created the whole world, why God created the whole world, he is created by him. And then you look at the last two words of verse 16, the whole world was created for him. So why? Why should the world be centered on Jesus Christ? It should be centered on Jesus Christ because it was created for him. In fact, not just the seen world, not just this earth that we can see, not just the moons and the stars that we can see, but even the powers and the principalities, all forms and all categories of angels were created by Jesus Christ, by him and for him. And so we live in a spiritual world. We live in a world where there are things that we can touch and things that we can feel, but also where there are things that we cannot see but which affect the things that we can touch and the things that we can feel. We live in a world where we need to know that God is in control. You look at the crazies in this world. You look at all the weird stuff that's going on. These are powers. And these are principalities in action, causing hatred, causing revenge, causing murders causing disharmony. And God wants to bring it all together. Sin did that. It wasn't originally meant to be that way. When God made the earth, God made all things. He said it is good. There was nothing wrong with it. But when sin entered into the world, it affected not just man, but it affected the whole earth. 
It affected the whole earth. But God didn't lose control. Yes, sin has its power on earth and we see its effect in us. We see its effects around us. But God isn't out of control. In fact, if you look at the verse there on the left-hand side, Romans 8, 38 through 39. Um, would you read it with me? Under God's word, Romans 8, 38 through 39. Let's say it together. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so even though there is all these other problems in the world, that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God when we know him, nothing in all of creation, because the one who created it is still in control, but more than being in control, he is in love. He is in love. And who's he in love with? He's in love with his bride. He's in love with those. Now, he loves the whole world, but he is particularly focusing on his love for his bride right now in Colossians. He is focusing on his love for the whole church. Look at verse 18, and I want to read through verse 20. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The Bible tells us right here that not only is Jesus the creator of all things, but he is also the head of the whole church. And so things are getting deeper now. So he started off with creation, and we go down deeper, and we end up with the church there. We see that Jesus has shed his blood on the cross for his bride. He has sacrificed his life. So the one who created the universe, the one who created human beings, died for them. He not only was creator, but he was redeemer. He's the head. He's the one in control. And when he died, he rose again. And the Bible says he was the firstborn from among the dead. The word firstborn is used twice in this passage. It's used in verse 18, but it's also used in verse 15. It's a word that has two meanings. In verse 15, the word firstborn means highest in rank and power. It means that he is preeminent. He is supreme. There is nothing higher than him. He is first and foremost in all things. That's what firstborn means there. But firstborn in verse 18 means first in a succession of things. And so Jesus was the first in the succession of those who would rise from the dead never to die again. He was the first to rise from the dead never to die again. 
But being the first, he was going to lead others out. He was going to have others who would follow him. And those would be those who would be reconciled to him. Those would be those who believe in him. Those who are those who receive him as the head of their lives. And so he wants them to follow him to be his church. He calls us to follow him. It says that he will reconcile to himself all things. And what that means is he's going to make sure everything is fair in the end. He's going to make sure that righteousness prevails. It doesn't mean that all things will be saved. In other words, it doesn't mean that everybody's going to become a Christian. And Jesus himself spoke about heaven and hell. It doesn't mean that all things are going to come and believe in Jesus. But it does mean that all things will submit to him. Everyone will submit to him. But everyone who wants to be part of his church is invited. And everyone who wants to be part of his family is accepted. It's just like when Jesus was on the cross and he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Who was he forgiving? He was forgiving those who crucified him. He was forgiving those who had lied about him. He was forgiving those who had done things that hurt his body and caused it great pain. But were all of them forgiven automatically? They were offered forgiveness. But it's just like with anyone else. You can't be in relationship even if you offer forgiveness unless they accept it. And so in the same way with reconciliation, God provides for everyone to be reconciled. But they must accept it. And when they do, they become part of this large body called the church. And Jesus is the head of that body. And so the church is also centered on Christ. So the world is centered on Christ. And the church is centered on Christ. And now we go even deeper into the church so that everyone is centered on Christ. Because he is the one who transforms every Christian. That's what the word reconciled means. It means to change. It means to change us. And we see that God has changed us in verses 21 and on. It says there, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you. In other words, you were once these things. You were once part of the things that were the enemies of God. You were alienated. You were separated from God. But now he has reconciled you. Now he has changed you by Christ's physical body through death to present you. So what has he done? How has he changed us? He's changed us so that we would be holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Free from accusation. I I love the way the Living Bible paraphrases verse 22. And you have that paraphrase there for you on your outline. And it's on the right-hand side at the top. And it's Colossians 1.22. And I'll read it and you can follow. But there it says... He has done this through the death on the cross of his own human body. And now as a result, Christ has brought you into the very presence of God. And you are standing there before him with nothing left against you. Nothing left that he could even chide you for. 
Think about that. Let me read the last part again. You are standing there. You are already in God's eyes. If you're a believer, if you're a Christian, you are already in God's eyes. You are standing there before him with nothing left against you. Nothing left he could even chide you for. That means that there's no more guilt. There's nothing that you have to remain to feel guilty about if you will give it to Jesus and trust him and believe that he paid for it already on the cross. And as you look under the so what section of our outlines on the right-hand side, you'll see that um, it, there's four soul what's. In other words, there are four prayer exercises there for you that you can do. You'll have time to do one of them later on in today's service. But when you go home, you can take any one of these and do them again or do them all or just do one. Probably take you maybe about 15 minutes. And you may even want to do it longer. You may enjoy it. But when we think about Colossians, the, that box there, Colossians 1.22, in other words, that if there's a place where you feel a nagging repetitive, lingering guilt, you don't have to. Because Jesus won't even chide you for it. He will not accuse you for it. And so you could say, like it says there, with each one of these, let's say you feel guilty about something. You could say, in Jesus Christ, God does not even chide me for cussing. In Jesus Christ, God does not even chide me for lying. In Jesus Christ, God does not even chide me for unfaithfulness. Now, does that mean that we are to sin so that God can do this? Of course not. And that's why the word if is there in our scriptures in verse 23. If it's there as an expectation as much as it is a condition. So, for example, if I were to say... If somebody will come up here and open their hands to me, I will give them $100. Would that be a good if? That'd be a pretty good if, right? But you'd have to come up here to me to get the $100. What if I said to you, if you walk over to that person, just think of any person that you would really like to like, or any person you would really like to like to like you, okay? If you walk over to that person, they will be your friend. Or suppose, I were to say, now, were you hurting in your heart? If you will give that to God, he will take care of you. He will take care of all the problems you feel. That's the kind of if it is. It's an if of expectation. It's an if of promises. But it's also an if that encourages us to persevere. It's an if that says, if you continue, in other words, if you continue to persevere in your faith, if you continue to do these things, God is going to bless you. We do this all the time. We make promises. In a marriage, we do it. You know, we say our vows, but there's a big if. If you're going to enjoy your marriage, you've got to continue to obey your vows. Now, we're getting excited now. Angela's applying for college, and she's applying to, you know, all these scholarships and different things. Now, if she gets in, that's great. 
But just going there isn't going to keep her. It's only if she studies, right? If she continues to learn. It's true for all of us that we may get something great, but there is an if in it. That means that if we're going to enjoy what we got, then there's something that we have to continue to do. We all have jobs, or I, I hope we all have jobs. And, and when we have a job, if we have a job, we have to work, right? You know, we just don't punch in and punch out. Did you hear about the guy that was, um, he was outsourcing all of his work to China? You heard about that a couple weeks ago? And so he's sitting in his cubicle. He'd used his computer, and he got some people in China to do all his work. And so he was just there all day just playing games, you know, working on his Facebook, Twitter account, stuff like that. And he had outsourced all of his work to China. They were sending it all back in. And this guy, man, this guy does great work. But he wasn't doing a thing. And he's cheating. Now, now, we can't do that. won't happen. You can't outsource your Christian life. Nobody else can do it for you. But Jesus can. Jesus can. So now, our lives, every Christian, it's gone deeper, right? So we started with creation, the world. It went deeper. It went into the church. That's the whole church. That's everybody who's ever believed in God and had faith in Jesus Christ throughout history. The universal church. But now, it goes down to every Christian, like in this church, in Harvest Community Church, in every one of us, Jesus Christ wants to go deeper. And look what he gives to us. In Jesus Christ, what do we have? We are holy in his sight. So now we are in the sun. Now it's not just that we're circling around the sun. We are in the sun. And the Bible says that we are holy and we are blameless. And the Bible says that with Jesus Christ, we are able to continue in faith. We cannot continue in our faith on our own power. Faith is also a gift from God. It is the gift of the ability to exercise trust in God. And so God will continue to give us faith. He will make us established and firm. He will not let us stay wishy-washy. He will give us a firm foundation. And then he will give us hope of the gospel. The gospel is the promise of heaven. The hope of being with all those that we love who have gone before us. And if we go before others, the hope that they will be with us forever. This is the hope that God gives. This is the promise. It's a relationship. It's not religion. It's not just something that you think about is true. It's something you live that you know in a relationship is real. I like the way that Tim Keller expresses it in his book called King's Cross. And there he says religion. This is religion. He says religion is advice on how you must live to earn your way to God. The gospel isn't advice. It's the good news that you don't need to earn your way to God. Jesus has already done it for you. And it's a gift. You receive by sheer grace through God's thoroughly unmerited favor. If you seize that gift, you will be passionate to make Jesus your absolute goal and priority to orbit around him. To orbit around him. And so now 
we see that God is calling us not just to be a group of people who might think vicariously we can outsource our Christian life just because we've been here together. So we know that Jesus Christ should be the center of creation. He is the center of the church. He is the center of every Christian when they gather together. But now, he has to be the center of me in the deepest place. We've gone from deep to deepest. That the indwelling glory of each individual believer is Jesus Christ himself. Notice now, as I read verses 24 through 27, that Paul no longer talks about you, but he uses a different pronoun. Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present myself, present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul's talking about himself right now. He's referring to the church, but he's giving a personal testimony of where he wants them to go. A personal testimony of how we go deeper into Christ. And that's by being his servant. And that's by being willing to do whatever he asks us to do. Remember, when we want the world to go around us, we want the world to do things for us. But when we go around God, we want to do what God wants us to do. He says, now I rejoice in what was suffered for you. I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant. I have become its servant. Paul's in jail. He's in a Roman jail. He's writing to a church a thousand miles away. But he wants them to know that he's in jail for them. He's suffering for them. Is there a place in your life where you're suffering right now? You may not think about it as suffering for God, but just think of a place right now where you're suffering. Is there a place? God wants to use that suffering to make you like Jesus. God wants to use your pain to make you like the image of his son. God lets us experience pain. Sometimes it's because circumstances in life. Sometimes it's mistakes we make. Sometimes it's because of our willingness to be the people God has called us to be and live out our Christian faith. Like Paul, I rejoice in what I suffered as God's servant. God wants us to be a servant. And if we are, it's going to be a sacrifice. But in every place of our lives where we're suffering, God wants to turn us into Jesus more and more. It's expressed in this way by Oswald Chambers in his book, My Utmost for His Highest. You have the quote there on the lower right-hand side of your outline. But there, Chambers writes, He is making us broken bread and poured out wine. He uses someone we dislike or set of circumstances to which we said we would never submit to, to crush us. Grapes only become wine when they have been squeezed. 
To be a holy person means that the elements of our natural life experience the very presence of God as they are providentially broken in his service. Stay right with God and let him do as he likes. And you will find that he is producing the kind of bread and wine that will benefit his other children. And so in the places of your life where you're hurting, God's using that to break you, to turn you into bread, to knead you, to let you rise to the occasion. God is letting you be squeezed so that your life can become juice and become wine to give refreshment to others. So when we are going through those difficult places in our lives, we are going through the difficult places where we don't understand We need to hold on to this mystery that Paul says. That though I'm hurting and though I'm broken, there is Christ in me. The deepest place of all. There is Christ in my soul. There is Christ in my heart. There is Christ in my life. He will take care of us. He wants to come in and take residence within us. But he wants one more thing. He doesn't want to just take care of us. He will do that. He doesn't want to just take residence in us. He will do that. But he wants to take over. He wants to take over our lives. And he wants us to have our orbit around him. Because he's already in us. He's already in every believer. And this is when we celebrate communion. We are taking the elements of Jesus Christ into us. It is a reminder to us of all that he has done for us. But it's also an invitation to center our lives on Christ. And so what we're going to do is we're going to have communion now. But we're going to have a little extra time. Of, we're going to let it go on about five minutes longer than normal with just quiet music. And you can look at any one of the, the soul what's on the right-hand side and just focus on one of them. And just think about that one that interests you. Because if you're a believer, then you have Christ in you to do these things. But if you're not yet a believer, then you can ask Jesus to be the center of your life. You can pray and bring your life into fellowship with the church through Jesus Christ. God will give us himself. God has given us his son. As we continue to dwell upon him, our lives can become more like him as we learn to live as he lived. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love, your goodness, and your grace. And Father, we pray that as we partake of communion, We pray that as we hold the elements, we pray that as we do this very special occasion of remembrance, we will certainly and always remember you. Lord, we pray that you would speak to every heart now, to every heart who knows Jesus that would take of the bread and take of the juice, that they would know what it means, even now, to hear your voice. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.